Hello, and welcome to this special Lancet podcast to accompany our annual Global Burden of Disease issue. Much like the issue itself, this podcast is packed full of interesting facts, and we'll be speaking to GBD guru Chris Murray, experts from three of this year's standout countries on why their country has performed so strongly, and to Lancet Editor-in-Chief Richard Horton about the past, the present, and the future of GBD. I'm Gavin Cleaver, and I'll be your guide through this special podcast. Now, first up, here's Richard Lane talking to Chris Murray about what's new and exciting in GBD 2016. Hi, I'm Chris Murray. I'm the director of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington. Why don't we just kick off with what's new this year? Because obviously the Lancet, we are committed to, to publishing the latest findings from the Global Burden of Diseases Project. If you could just say in a nutshell, what do you think is different about GBD 2016 to, to what's gone before? Well, one of the themes that there's been a lot of effort across collaboration uh, this cycle has been around uh, data quality, actually. And so we've introduced a number of efforts to much more rigorously characterize uh, the nature of the data that go into the analysis. So, for example, we are publishing uh, the completeness of vital registration or death registration for the first time ever, actually, over time. So we have a time series. And, and the good news there is it shows that uh, every year the fraction of deaths has been going up, albeit slowly. But we're, we're, getting, uh, we're seeing real improvement in some places like China, dramatic improvement in death registration. Another area of innovation is where we've added uh, the assessment of the quality of cause of death uh, data. And we've given a five-star rating for each country uh, over, on the overall quality, both of the completeness, but also, you know, how good are the death certificates that are being filled out and how often is uh, an inappropriate cause used on the death certificate. So there's been a, a you know, a big theme uh, running through the work on the data side. And if you think about it, the, the GBD uses more than 100,000 different data sources, where a data source might be vital statistics for the United States in a year or a DHS survey. Uh, and so when you have that many different data sources, uh, work on data quality is obviously a big undertaking, and it's one that we will continue to pursue in the future. Other areas that are new is we have uh, introduced in the SDG work, we've introduced a better measure of universal health coverage, which I think will generate a lot of uh, utility and, and potentially interest. And we've run the, we've made some very basic uh, forecast based on past trends of what will happen uh, for each of the health-related SDG uh, indicators. So those are some new innovations that, that are there. And then, of course, as new data comes in, there are new empirical findings uh, across a, a spectrum of areas. There's you know big new pockets of data that have been contributed by collaborators. Uh, Vision is an example where that's happened. So there are things like that that are throughout the, the analysis that you, you will see. And referring to some of the sort of core, I suppose, health indicators that will be of interest to uh, not just clinicians, but the wider global health community, some of these things we've sort of known about for a while, but I think GBD 2016 data is encapsulating it pretty well. For example, depression, mental health, this is a leading cause of, of illness and disability, isn't it? In, in, in most countries worldwide, we're seeing that, obviously, because there's a shift in population from, in the old days, death at, death at younger ages is, is decreasing, but that's shifting to people living longer and living Living longer with disability. Do you want to comment on that point about depression? Yes, I mean, I think in the context, well, you know, as you said, we're seeing, uh, you know, generally people living longer. There's exceptions like Syria and Yemen, where because of conflict, 
but we're generally seeing broad-based improvement in survival, uh, particularly because of reduction in child death, but, but also in adults. But we're not seeing uh, much change in the age-specific rates, uh, prevalence rates of the big causes of disability, among which depression is one of the most important. And so that phenomenon, which means that uh, we are progressively seeing communities and health systems facing a, a greater burden from the causes of disability rather than the causes of death, is, is certainly continuing at, at pace. Uh, and, and now with all the attention coming to substance abuse and, you know, the, the, the opioid crisis in a number of countries, the U.S. most notable, I think the, the attention is going to uh, increase around both mental health and substance abuse issues. And, and from the data, that's very appropriate. Indeed. And also, of course, non-communicable diseases. You know, 72% of, of deaths now attributable to NCDs. You know, that again, over time, there's, there's been a shift there. And uh, blood glucose concentrations, the emergence or explosion, some people would say, of type 2 diabetes. Again, we sort of know this, but the GBD data is really encapsulating that in an up-to-date global viewpoint, isn't it? Yes, and I think on the, on the first point around the shift towards NCDs, what's interesting or, or perhaps not as well known as that general shift is just the extraordinary pace of the shift. So if you look at some of the emerging economies and middle-income countries, uh, places like China or Brazil, and even to some extent India, the pace with which uh, we're shifting towards a profile of burden dominated by NCDs is really quite extraordinary because we're seeing compressed into a generation what took you know, eight or 10 generations in, in the West. Uh, and so that is really quite dramatic and that has profound effects on how health systems are organized and able in terms of human resources and their planning abilities to react to such a pace of, of demographic and epidemiological change. Thank you, Chris and Richard. So now we turn to our exemplar GBD countries and we're really looking to delve into what's made health and life expectancy in these countries such a success. First, I spoke with Oli Norheim about Ethiopia. Yeah, I'm a professor of medical ethics at the University of Bergen uh, and also an adjunct professor at the Department of Global Health and Population at Harvard Chan School of Public Health. And I've been doing research in Ethiopia for many years. I was actually born there, so I have a special, special affiliation to the country. So we are working closely with the Ministry of Health uh, working on projects related to priority setting for health services in Ethiopia. Well, fantastic, and thank you so much for joining us today. So, Professor, this GBD paper, it marks Ethiopia out as, over the last 16 years, a kind of an exemplar for achieving better-than-expected life expectancy, given level of development. So in 2000, life expectancy in Ethiopia was 6.7 years less than expected, but in 2016 it was five years greater than expected. So what would you say are the major factors behind this rise? Yeah, so in the early 2000s, uh, um, Ethiopia, under the leadership of Dr. Theodros. Uh, he was then a Minister of Health and he's now the Director General of WHO. He implemented a primary healthcare program, the so-called Health Extension Worker Program. And this is a system where, an, or a model where in each village, or kebele as it's called, two health extension workers, that is 10th graders with one year of healthcare training, they serve the community, about 5,000 people with the basic services such as health education, health promotion on, on hygiene and nutrition, immunizations, and they also provide some basic treatment for malaria and referrals to health centers. 
So although the impact of this program has not been properly evaluated through RCTs or similar uh, studies, but I think it's widely agreed that it has influenced this uh, spectacular improvement of key health indicators seen in Ethiopia. In addition, I would say that also Ethiopia has seen economic growth for the last, more than the last decade of around 10%, which is one of the highest in, in Africa. But I think this effort of prioritizing community-based primary health care has been uh, a key to the success in Ethiopia. Absolutely, and what an incredible success it is. So would you say, looking to the future, that Ethiopia is on track to meet its SDG goals by 2030? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I think Ethiopia are definitely on the right track, but I'm not so sure that they will achieve all the targets. And the reason for this is that I think Ethiopia is still under-investing in the health sector. They spend less than $30 per person uh, now. And I think substantial scale-up is needed to both expand essential services for maternal and child health and infectious diseases, but also to include services for prevention and treatment of NCDs and injuries. So to really reduce, say, premature mortality from NCDs by one-third, I think that will be hard. Also, achieving universal health coverage with financial risk protection may also be very hard in 13 years. But I think Ethiopia has taken the first important steps uh, and they aim to be a lower middle income country by 2025. So if they can mobilize more domestic resources and prioritize the right health services, I think they at least can continue this very positive path that they have started on. But it's only 13 years uh, to 2030, so achieving all the targets will, will be hard. Yes, and you mentioned their strong economic growth. Now, to what extent do they funnel that right back into healthcare? Is that one of their main priorities from the, from the growth of the country? Yeah, uh, I think the, the present uh, Minister of Health, Professor Yifru, has really expressed an, uh, a willingness to think about how to mobilize uh, domestic resources because overseas development aid that Ethiopia is depending on now for, for health services uh, might not continue indefinitely. So I think there is a willingness to mobilize uh, other sources. Uh, there are plans underway to reduce poverty and improve the tax collection systems. But of course, that's difficult in a country with a large informal economy and a large rural population. And now back to Richard Lane, who's going to be talking with Mahesh Maski about Nepal's health record. My name is uh, Mahesh Maski, and uh, I am the executive chair of Nepal Public Health Foundation. Dr. Maskey, many thanks indeed for joining the Lancet's Global Burden of Diseases podcast. The reason we're speaking to Nepal is that you're one of the countries that has come out of the Global Burden of Disease in a very positive light. Specifically, if you look at life expectancy data, for example, which is in one of the Global Burden of Disease papers, Nepal's life expectancy is between three and six years higher than one would have expected in relation to its uh, social demographic index, or SDI. It's around 70 years for men and 72 years for women. Why do you think this is? What factors do you think there is about the country of Nepal and its health system that, that could explain this, this finding? I think we have to take a long view of history to answer this question, uh, even though it is quite obvious that impressive decline in mortality, fertility, um, malnutrition, and a health-conscious behavioral change are some of the determining factors for this achievement. You see, over the past uh, 40 years, Nepal has 
uh, taken a consistent public health-oriented policies, creating a very strong community-based health system. And this system attempted to reach the most unreached population in one of the most difficult terrain in the world. And the system has worked well amidst the stresses of a decade of armed conflict, uh, followed by another decade of unstable political transition and very low economic growth. So uh, that's one important factor to bear in mind. And another equally important is the, uh, the achievement in health is tied up with our people's movement, the struggle for health. And uh, this struggle ultimately resulted in uh, uh, putting health right in Nepal's constitution. So that uh, led to a big uh, orientation towards universal health coverage. And the state has taken responsibility, and it has uh, shifted its policy away from the earlier user fee model. And um, therefore, now, the, uh, even in the remote, remotest corner of Nepal, uh, we have essential package of uh, like essential medicine and other health services. Uh, therefore, the, especially it was geared towards uh, maternal and child health care. Uh, if you look at the whole uh, package of public health, and it is no surprise that uh, Nepal received award in MDG, MDG four and MDG five. Uh, but I should also tell that uh, the massive investment in education sector has also synergized the effect of um, uh, health sector, I think. Here we should also note that, uh, you know, the medical education in Nepal from the very inception was community-oriented. And Nepal created a very huge army of mid-level health professionals uh, that integrated with volunteerism of uh, female community health volunteers in the very lowest level, and it's a very small administrative unit called wards. So uh, these FCSBs, which are now very famous internationally as a model, innovative model of Nepal, were actually an, an integral component of the mother's group of the local community, and therefore they were integrated in health and development activities. And th this kind of drive, both FCSBs and mother groups were like a woman's initiative in a way. And I think uh, Nepal's health sector also is one of the examples that how a local woman's power can bring about changes in health sector. So this impressive decline in mortality, fertility, malnutrition, uh, all these uh, may be largely ascribed to these strengths which have positively impacted the life expectancy at birth. And it could be that Nepal's case may question the tenet of social determinants for health by giving uh, increased weightage to health service component and by highlighting stronger role of health system in behavioral change, leading to increased life expectancy and its population. And here's Francesca Toey talking to Peru's Jaime Miranda. I am, my name is Jaime Miranda. I am a physician by training and I currently work at Universidad Peruana Cayetano Heredia in Lima, Peru, which is a health science-oriented university. I direct the Chronic Center of Excellence in Joint Diseases at Cayetano Heredia, and am I also a professor in the School of Medicine at the same university. As we said, Peru has been highlighted as one of these exemplar countries with having a higher life expectancy than expected. So Peru's life expectancy is now 77.8 years for men, 81.6 years for women, and life expectancy overall is five to seven years longer than what would be expected based on the country's level of development alone.
What changes do you think have happened or were made between 2000 and 2016 that have helped contribute to this increase in life expectancy? It is certainly evident that food has transitioned through major economical improvements and that may be well reflected in the projections in life expectancy. Peru as a country has been moving from different changes in, in terms of big big macroeconomic processes and um, certainly one of the biggest jumps has been has been observed in, in the change of GDP, well domestic product, which has increased massively. So much that Peru is now ranked among the upper middle income countries in the region. So that's number one, a big macroeconomic process. But number two, within the health sector also there has been changes as well. And and the dynamics of the health sector is very complex in terms of as a health system, not only uh, the number of doctors and the shortages of human resources and professionals, but also the expansion in presence, let's say, in presence in, in many places, and playing back by the coverage of certain programs such as vaccinations and uh, major attention at the policy level to undernutrition and anemia as well. If there's a, any single health issue that brings attention of different policymakers across different sectors, not only health, is, is the issue of anemia. And that in itself is, is an important gain. And anemia plus poverty has something that has been getting the attention of multiple non-health sectors as well. Together with changing from a, a situation where child survivor was very let's say, needed more attention, and having had the, the chances to improve vaccination and nutrition means that the target in terms of, let's say, again, child survival has been somewhat achieved. And therefore, you have a population that has been transitioning in the last two to three decades from high rates of uh, child mortality and and handicaps in different childhood indicators to now a country pretty much that has lower those rates. A country where the different cohorts of children are have better chances of transitioning to full society. Whether that on itself has the power to have not down effects on life expectancy, it may be, it may have so. But what we're seeing is by just looking at that very acute indicator of different moments or different phases of how difficult it is to sustain high-quality childhood indicators may have not done the effect also in adult populations. My point being is that children population are much more sensitive to acute, to acute and, and societal problems, and the adult populations may be more resilient to that, and therefore they may be even longer as well. So that combination of macroeconomic gains, yes, it is very upset that on average Peru has grown in certain parts, particularly driven by the mining economy. And number two, the expansion of coverage of certain uh, healthcare programs, it may, it may be given those, those, those figures that are being proportioned in, in, in this issue of the land. Another paper of the Global Burden of Disease 2016 study discusses the Health-Related Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. You mentioned a few points that are in the health-related SDGs, such as child mortality. 
Do you think Peru is on track to achieving these by 2030? Or what are some of the main targets for Peru? What I do remember from the NDGs is that we were on target for pretty much most of them. And uh, if, if the SDGs haven't changed much in direction, I mean, there are not that many newer ones, the same trend will continue. If anything, these is a very broad statement in terms of and how you define them. The transition may, may, may from NDGs to SDGs may show you a trend. Now what we have a challenge is how to address the SDGs in a much more comprehensive manner. Because all these wording has difficulties of trying to look at the positives, when we know that the negatives are much more difficult to reach, harder to reach, and difficult to, to achieve. And that's our challenge in Peru as a, as a country, very diverse country. Finally then, we turn to Richard Horton to hear a little bit about the past, present and future of GBD and worldwide sustainable development. Hi, my name is Richard Horton and I'm editor of The Lancet. So Richard, what for you was especially notable about GBD 2016? What I love about the global burden of disease is that it gives us a fantastic snapshot of the state of the world's health. Um, 128 million live births in 2016, 54, almost 55 million deaths and tremendous improvements in under five mortality. Um, now at the five million mark, continued declines in maternal deaths. It really gives us a feel for the progress we're making in global health and, of course, the, the very rapid transitions that we're seeing right now. For example, perhaps the, the most important transition is to non-communicable disease, where we're seeing almost three-quarters of all deaths in the world being down to chronic diseases. So the Lancet Commission on Investing in Health said that there's the opportunity to deliver dramatic worldwide health gains and even to end preventable mortality by 2035. Has GBD 2016 altered this picture? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The whole idea of convergence, that uh, low-income countries could converge to the successes of high-income countries, was a tremendously mobilizing and optimistic message. And I think the data so far are cautiously optimistic. Um, it's a glass-half-full or a glass-half-empty interpretation you could take. And I think what GBD shows is that there are some areas um, where there is convergence uh, between countries. Uh, but sad to say, there are a lot of countries in fragile states um, that are subject to humanitarian crises, um, that are chronically lacking in resources, where the hope of convergence has not been fully realized. You know, when we, when we did the Global Health 2035 Commission, we were looking at economic growth rates across African countries GDP growth above 5%. So they would have had the fiscal, fiscal space to invest in health. But unfortunately, what we've seen in the last uh, four or five years is that those hopes have not been realized. And quite simply, the money is not available to invest in health systems. So moving on to the data in GBD 2016, what diseases does, does it show us that global attention should be focused on? And you mentioned as well about the gap between communicable and non-communicable diseases. Perhaps you could illustrate that a little bit for us. Well, um, it's a fascinating transition because we are absolutely defeating many infectious diseases. Um, sometimes you wouldn't think that. Of course, we have outbreaks of new infections and emerging infections, and we have to worry about those, and we have to protect against those pandemic threats. But the overall picture is very positive on communicable diseases, with one exception, um, which leaps out from the GBD, and that's dengue. Um, dengue caused almost 38,000 deaths in 2016 and is a clear and present danger 
to many vulnerable populations, and we need to do more to address dengue. But of course, the big story, um, as we've already said, is on non-communicable diseases. Um, and of course, top of the list there is ischemic heart disease and stroke. And what's driving those diseases are obesity, tobacco use, and in particular, diet. And we're seeing from those risk factors, that foundation of risk factors, this unfortunately explosive epidemic in many countries of um, diabetes as well. And that's something that we have to be very, very concerned about. But what I'd also say, what, what this GBD this year does, which it hasn't been the case in the past, is yes, it does look at diseases and, and measures those transitions, but it also tells us some fantastic stories about countries and the successes of countries. Um, and these countries, the same countries keep popping up in different papers uh, because they've been doing good things. And we need to learn from these countries. So I can, you know, we can take examples like Ethiopia. Um, Ethiopia has got some fantastic health metrics. Well, that's a mystery. What have they done? And I know that one of the podcasts that you've done has, is going to explore this, Gavin. We need to really think through why has Ethiopia been successful? Why Peru? Why Nepal? Why Nicaragua? Um, different continents have great examples that we can draw important lessons from. Well, so what could the world do collectively that we're not doing now to improve health in all countries? Well, I think the first thing to say is that what the GBD does is provide a fantastic foundation for monitoring progress. But the GBD is not a political instrument. It is, it is a collection of data points. What now has to happen is it has to feed into a political process. And the only organization that has the convening power to bring countries together to discuss the meaning, the impact, the implications of the GBD is the World Health Organization. And in the editorial that we have written to go with uh, the GBD report for 2016, we, we say that what is now required is for WHO and other partners to convene an annual meeting to discuss the implications of what the GBD is telling us. It's no good measuring things if you're not going to do something about them, and that's what we really need to uh, address now. As for the Sustainable Development Goals, would you say we're still, we're still on target for them? Well, the SDGs, I think it's still too early to be absolutely sure the direction of travel. This is only the second year we've been reporting data on progress in the health-related SDGs. Singapore is in the top slot, and that's quite interesting. Um, some people might say, well, Singapore is a small country of 241 square miles and a very small number of people by comparison with, say, Nigeria or China. But actually, there's an interesting lesson there. Singapore is a city, a city-state. And as we are seeing rapid urbanization over the next decade or so, perhaps the way we need to be thinking about realizing the sustainable development goals isn't at the level of a country, but is much more at the level of cities. Cities often have local governance arrangements. They're smaller entities that we can do something with, whereas countries can be divided into federated provinces, much more difficult to make um, decisions for. So Singapore being in the top slot might give us a clue for how we can accelerate progress. Finally then, and that might be one angle towards it, how will GBD have to change in the future to adapt? What the GBD fundamentally reports is 
an improvement, a progressive improvement in the world's health. And that's a great story. But of course, surrounding that success is the fact that we are facing some potentially catastrophic ecological threats. Ecological threats that threaten the foundation of human civilization. Now that sounds incredibly dramatic, but you only have to look at this century to see that if we have a four degree Celsius temperature increase by the end of this century, we could actually have two billion climate refugees. So we have to look at the context in which we're reporting health. And I think one of the challenges for the GBD is to bring in metrics of climate, to bring in metrics of biodiversity, to bring in metrics of our broader ecological systems and services, to try and understand those determinants, those risks, to the future of human health. That's a big challenge, but I know, I know that the Institute of Health Metrics and Evaluation are looking at what those metrics might be, and we're going to see some evolution in the next few years. Well, Richard, thank you very much. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. And you can now read all of our GBD papers online at thelancet.com and in our latest issue.